Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. This is intimidating, all this technology, I can hardly see you. Um, I met Vince uh, in a very weird hotel in LA, it was all black, and uh, he came to interview me, and uh, I thought we were going to have this nice conversation, you know, and within minutes we were in the deep end of the pool. And then we went down even lower, not to go down the drain, but it really had this feeling that instantly we were really exploring the actual edge, moment to moment of how some kind of natural process is constructing consciousness, moment after moment after moment. So in this presentation, which I hope to do with some experiential practices and definitely some Q&A and discussion and comments, um, I'd like to explore with you what is that edge? As soon as my slides show up, but whatever. Um, not that I need them as a crutch or anything, but I do. But anyway. Um, I was talking with Vince earlier about how uh, TED Talks, when I was Lee Brasington, how TED Talks were kind of changing the way people teach. And, you know, people talk about how PowerPoint has changed the way we teach, also another kind of technology. But anyway, what I hope to explore with you is how to ground the mind in life and how to ground Dharma practice in life, uh, in the evolution of the nervous system over 600 million years, and in particular, how can we know a little bit, or even a lot, about the three pounds of tofu, right, inside the coconut? That's the final common pathway of all the causes streaming through us, moment after moment after moment, to make this sense of consciousness that we're having right now. So that's what I'm interested in, creating kind of a frame, and how to think about uh, embedding Dharma practice in human biology and evolutionary neuropsychology altogether. That's the intention. And then in terms of good, my slides are up, so let me try. 
Good. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. Some of my slides are out of order. This is good. I'm going to have to think on my feet. Okay, here we go. So, I want to talk about, as soon as the clicker works, the intersection of these three circles. Here we go. And uh, you can imagine what could be found really at the center of these three circles. You know, the contemplative traditions in Buddhism are the ones I know best, 2,500 or so years old. Other great religions in the world, uh, including the indigenous shamanic traditions, have a contemplative wing, as do certainly the secular traditions. So there's this ancient stream of wisdom, and uh, it has come to intersect increasingly with modern brain science and modern neuropsychology. As I think the next slide shows, Oppenheimer talks here about the history of science being rich in the examples of bringing two things together. Uh, when I, uh, just the title, Buddhist Geeks, you know, brings two things together. So I just think that's where some very cool stuff is. You think about tidal pools and the emergence of life. I think about cultures coming together. So how can we bring this territory of powerful contemplative practice that has never needed an EEG or an MRI to have its impact? How do we bring that together with modern culture, modern technology, and a deepening understanding of the underlying causes of this moment of consciousness? You know, the Buddha, for example, engaged the causes of suffering and its end. That's what he said he taught. One thing, right, suffering and its end. Um, he engaged those causes at the level of the mind. That's all he knew. He made reference to nature in many of his metaphors, many of his examples. Um, but as far as he was concerned, all he knew was, in effect, the, what was above the waterline. Today, though, we're increasingly able to embed or nest the mental causes of suffering and its end in terms of the underlying neural biological causes of suffering in its end. And what interests me a lot is how to mine that territory for practical purposes. Now to do that, of course, we need a certain empiricism. I love this quote, when the facts change, I change my mind, what do you do? So it's in that territory that I hope to proceed. Okay, so grounding in the brain pitfalls. Bear with me for a second. So just so you know, this is very different than I thought I was going to be presenting. <laughs> this has never happened to me before. So bear with me. It's really funny, at a Buddhist Geeks conference, I can't make the technology work. I've never had to do this, but I'm going to totally have a good time. I'm going to do something totally different. All right, screw it. Here we go. All right. Good, I really love, the irony is really fantastic, you know? And like a technology thing, you know, I've got to get off the technology. All right, so we're going to actually practice. I want to make a few points. First point is that in the natural frame that I'm going to be working in, it acknowledges that there may be a transcendental. There may be an X factor, right? Call it God, call it the ground, the nameless, something supernatural, if you will. But otherwise, moment to moment, bottom line, what we think, what we feel, the aggregates, uh, the feeling tone of moment to moment experience, our perceptions, awareness itself must be the result of natural processes. What that means operationally is that moment to moment mental activity, whether it's unconscious in terms of information flows in the nervous system that are outside of awareness, which is where the great bulk of the mind resides, 
You know, in the standpoint of neuroscience, uh, the nervous system is an information processing system. And mind or synonyms like mental refer to information. So we have this information processing system that stores information, represents it, transports it, communicates it, operates upon it, and so forth. We have this system that's physical, that's representing non-physical, immaterial information. You can't weigh information, it's intangible. You can't um, hold up meaning in your hand, right? And yet, in the nervous system, much as in a computer, much as in the marks on the screen, we can see that some kind of underlying physical concrete substrate represents non-physical information. That technically and Philosophy is called dual aspect monism. As soon as I came across that phrase, I knew I would use it to impress my family, but <laughs> our young adult kids, they were totally not interested. So anyway, so the, the model, the naturalist model, if you will, of the mind-brain system uh, involves uh, immaterial information, mental activity, that's how I'll use that word, represented by underlying neural activity uh, in such a way that they co-arise. Uh, they are interdependent with each other. Uh, the interesting thing is that ongoing patterns of neural activity leave lasting traces in neural structure. The nervous system, uh, and the brain in particular, the headquarters of the nervous system, is the organ that learns. It is designed to learn from our experiences. That's experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Okay? That's the basic frame in which I'm going to work. This means, in a fundamental way, that what the Buddha said when he talked about how the mind takes its shape from whatever it rests upon. This means, fundamentally, that the brain takes its shape from whatever our mind rests upon. Because experience-dependent neuroplasticity, the ways in which what we think and feel, both consciously and unconsciously, is shaping the nervous system, that process of neuroplasticity, summarized in the famous line, neurons that fire together, wire together, that process of neuroplasticity is turbocharged for what's in the field of focused attention. That means that where we rest our attention uh, is deeply, deeply shaping the mind, or the brain rather, for better or worse. If we routinely rest our attention on worrying about our slides, right? or rest our attention on grumbling or complaining to ourselves about ourselves or self-criticism or anxious rumination, well, over time, we will have a brain that is increasingly sensitized to the negative, right? Uh, we'll have a brain that's increasingly depleted of serotonin, a neurotransmitter that supports mood. We'll have a brain in which the amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain, is increasingly sensitized and goes off more and more rapidly. And we'll have a brain, due to chronic flows of the stress hormone cortisol, in which another part of, called the hippocampus gradually loses cells because they're killed by cortisol, a stress hormone, losing up to a quarter of the volume. And the hippocampus is a very important part of the brain. It's involved in making new memories, uh, but it's also involved in putting things in context and calming down the amygdala and telling another part of the brain, the hypothalamus, to quit calling for stress hormones. You see the vicious cycle. It means that stress today resting our mind on worries and anger and anxiety and the rest of that, stress today um, releases cortisol that makes the brain more vulnerable to stress tomorrow, which makes it really vulnerable to stress the day after. And it's important to appreciate, to pick up on a theme I'll be getting to momentarily, that ancient systems that evolved in very, very harsh conditions in which the mortality rate was very, very high, 
these ancient systems that helped our ancestors uh, survive charging tigers or lethal aggression in their primate band, these same systems are locked and loaded today when we're stuck in traffic or doing too many emails or dealing with a frown across a dinner table or with somebody who, you know, does the eye roll, right? And like, what are you doing to me? The same systems that evolved to take care of raw survival get going if we're irritated, frazzled, anxious, or upset. So if we rest our minds routinely there, the brain will take a certain shape. On the other hand, if we rest our mind, if we rest our intention increasingly on things that are factually based and useful, uh, our everyday accomplishments, uh, the kindness of other people. I've received a lot of kindness from Buddhist geeks already today. People who picked me up, brought me here, have taken care of me and all the rest of that. Uh, a sense of the goodness in our own heart. Um, a felt sense of compassion or caring or steadiness of mind, steadiness of attention. If we rest our attention there, the brain will take a different shape. We'll get more activation, left prefrontal cortex for right-handed people and roughly half of all lefties. It's reversed for roughly half of all left-handed people. But anyway, for most people, you get more activation in the left side if you rest your mind routinely on the everyday positive experiences of daily life. You build up resilience of various kinds in various systems uh, in your brain. And the result of which is you feel more confident, more resilient, and stronger in how you deal with life. That's the essence of the opportunity, really, that we have the capacity to use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better. That's the essence of self-directed neuroplasticity. And while neuroscience is a baby science, uh, we're just really in the frontier of what's increasingly being learned about the most important, the most central organ in the body. Even though we're just at the beginning of that, it is increasingly clear that there are a lot of connections between mental activity and underlying neural activity. And with increasingly skillful means, we can stimulate the neural circuits that underlie wholesome states of mind. The factors of awakening in Buddhism, such as tranquility, or investigation, or rapture, right, or equanimity. We can rest our mind on certain um, things that stimulate those circuits. And then because neurons that fire together wire together, therefore strengthen them. And that has tremendous value, I think, for Dharma practice. So I'll mention four ways in which I think neuroscience is actually useful for Dharma practice, and I would say for healing and everyday well-being and effectiveness and you know, self-actualization and personal growth in general. There are a lot of ways that neuroscience, even though I'm very steeped in that world, uh, my training is a psychologist, neuropsychologist. Uh, I've been meditating since 1974, and uh, I teach um, meditation and, and the Dharma in general. So it's from that standpoint that's very practical you know, that I've gotten very interested in this. That said, I think there's a lot of old wine in new bottles. I think there's a lot of brain science brought into Dharma practice and psychology that doesn't add any value. It's kind of cool. You know, you can sell books. You want to sell books these days, put brain in the title. Not that I'd ever do that. Right? <laughs> so, four kinds of benefits, right? First is that it's motivating. Conviction. You know, you may know conviction, faith, confidence. It's one of the five spiritual powers in Buddhism. And by developing conviction, motivation, um, we become more willing to practice, we hang in there, we stay with it. Knowing somehow that what you do 
isn't just resulting in something sort of ineffable in the benefits, but it's actually changing your brain. It's actually physical. It's going into the meat, you know? can motivate people to be more careful about where they rest their mind in terms of things that don't help them and be more motivated to shift their attention to something better. Second, the brain is an organizing uh, framework. Uh, if you look at Buddhism and as it's moved throughout the world, there's this diversity of approaches. And frankly, there has been, historically certainly, a fair amount of sectarianism. Inside the natural frame, there's only one brain, fundamentally. So whether we talk about those neural mental processes within a Theravadan frame, in terms of the early teachings of Buddhism, or within a Tibetan frame, or a Zen frame, or a Pure Land frame, or some other sort of frame, at the end of the day, in, inside the natural frame, you're just talking about one brain. The third benefit, I think, of bringing neuroscience into practice is that it highlights methods that are not being invented by neuroscience but are actually really, really important. So for example, one of the benefits I've seen from bringing um, neuroscience into Dharma practice is a deeper appreciation of embodiment. It's really funny for me, you know, as a, I was like king of the dorks, or at least the dork club, you know, when I was growing up through school, total nerd, and um, very much in my head. And it's interesting that all this sort of intellectual firepower around uh, neurodharma, if you will, brings us back into the body. Because you realize that most of the learning and most of what's really, really consequential uh, in, in terms of the brain has to do with deeply embodied processing. We privilege language. Uh, we're good at it, right? You know, we privilege uh, consciousness. But most of what's going on in terms of the streams of mental activity, the information flows through the neural networks, most of that has nothing to do with verbal activity. And it's very much about managing bodily systems and deep, deep motivations and feelings. So the more in which uh, our practice comes back into the body in a very, very deep way, uh, the more we come home to ourselves. And I think neuroscience has made contributions in that regard. It also makes contributions in terms of neurological diversity. There are many different types of meditators. Uh, if you think of it, um, you know, as we evolved in small bands that bred mainly internally, having a diversity of temperament was adaptive uh, for, you know, when competing with other bands. If you think of something like, you know, jackrabbits here, the territory of spirited ADHD, you know, territory, tweeners, and then turtles at the other end of the temperamental spectrum, right? You know, bands that were only turtles or only jackrabbits or only tweeners didn't do so well competing against other bands. So it's natural to have jackrabbity temperaments. The problem is most contemplative practices, I think, were developed by turtles, for turtles, and turtle pens, <laughs> you know, to make them better turtles, right? But what do you do if you're a jackrabbit by nature or you've grown up in a jackrabbity culture, right, where you're habituated in your brain to a very dense incoming stream of stimulation? How do you adapt traditional methods for steadiness of mind for jackrabbits, as it were? And that, too, I think, is where uh, neuroscience is something useful to say about individualizing practice and respecting individual differences because neurological diversity is the deep natural diversity. It's not a constructed, socially or culturally constructed form of diversity. It has really high impact. So that's anyway an illustration of, I think, the third benefit of bringing neuroscience into contemplative practice. And the fourth one is that occasionally 
uh, knowing something about the machinery of the brain actually suggests new methods. And neurofeedback is an example of that, brainwave devices, uh, technology coming in to um, accelerate or enrich or enhance practice. I don't think technology or you know, these new methods are going to replace traditional methods, but they can enrich practice for busy householders who really want to go deep and don't have uh, the time to do long retreat practice as a major part of their life, you know, month in and month out. I want to illustrate momentarily, or talk about at least, uh, depending on where my slides are, who knows? Um, you know, another innovation, I think, but to do that, I want to talk about evolution. All right. And the negativity bias. So if you're searching through my slides somewhere, negativity bias, anything that looks like three layers of the brain, okay. So I'll use my brain as a visual device here. So here you are. So as we evolved, basically over 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system. So quick context, probably familiar for most people here. Life's been on the planet roughly 3.5, 3.7-ish, maybe 3.5 billion years. Multi-celled creatures arose about 650 million years ago. And they got complicated enough after roughly another, nope, but it's okay. Um, you know, another uh, 50 million years of evolution that their sensory systems and their motor systems needed to communicate with each other. They needed to exchange information, thus the beginning of the nervous system. And now 600 million years later, you know, from ancient jellyfish, literally, through, you know, fish and creatures crawling out, reptiles, and then mammals about 200 million years ago, primates around 40 million years ago, and then uh, stone tool manufacturing, hominids, about 2.5, 2.7 million years ago, who could make stone tools, which I can't do, uh, with a brain a third our size. You know, the brain has been evolving, uh, and the nervous system has been evolving for a long time, and the results are present inside our heads today. So to simplify, the brain developed essentially like the floors of a house in three layers. Brainstem, subcortex, cortex. This is the triune brain model from Paul McLean. It's a simplification. I think it's a useful fiction. Then, to take it a step further, related to these three layers of the brain were three major stages of evolution. Loosely defined, reptilian, mammalian, primate human. Okay? So, right? And then, also, as the brain evolved, so did its capacity to meet our three fundamental needs which is a major framework that I'll be working, working with here. First need, of course, is safety. Rule one in the wild is eat lunch today, don't be lunch today, right? And then a second major need is satisfaction. We've got to get those carrots. We have to get those mating opportunities, right? We need to experience some kind of accomplishment or reward, particularly as the nervous system gets increasingly sophisticated. And the third fundamental core need is for connection for a relationship. Maybe that's handled in a very elemental way uh, by ancient creatures or simple creatures today, uh, or it's handled in very sophisticated ways today uh, as people have relationships with each other. All right. Now, loosely, these needs and the ways in which the brain goes about meeting these needs are linked to this reptilian, mammalian, and primate human stage of evolution. But the whole brain works together to meet those needs. That said, I think of myself as like, I have like an inner zoo, 
You know, I have a lizard, a mouse, and a monkey inside. It's kind of how it feels. <laughs> anyway, to me personally. And um, if you think about it, a lot of life boils down to pet the lizard, feed the mouse, hug the monkey. You know, <laughs> in terms of our three core needs, right? So we have these broad motivational regulatory systems that manage this for us. They avoid harms, meeting our safety need, needs. They approach rewards, meeting our needs for satisfaction. And they attach to others, right, in terms of our needs for connection. So I'm building kind of a model here. It's not unique to me. I've adapted the work of lots of other people. It's, it's a useful simplification like models are. But see what you think about it. Because what I'm working my way toward here is trying to operationalize the second and third noble truths. How do we neurologically, neuropsychologically, biologically, grounding in life, conceive of craving? Right? And in particular, how do we conceive of the end of craving? And then how do we uh, use that knowledge in practical ways? So maybe what I'll do with you right here is that I'll kind of complete my model and then pause for breath, uh, see if there are any questions or comments so far, and then go into some very practical implications. So when we experience, or an animal experiences, that its core needs are met, when there's a basic sense of safety, a basic sense of satisfaction, a basic sense of connection at whatever level is appropriate for that animal, including us, the brain defaults to its resting state, its homeostatic equilibrium condition that is, um, uh, can be perpetuated relatively easily. And the body repairs and refuels itself in this state. I call it the responsive mode. Other people have used that term as well. Uh, really to simplify, I think of it as the green zone in a nutshell. So in this state, the body refuels itself. It repairs itself. Um, because it's homeostatic, it can stay in that place. And in three broad umbrella terms, in terms of our needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, in terms of the avoiding, approaching, and attaching systems of the brain, the mind is colored by peace, contentment, and love. Okay. In this state, there is no um, basis for craving. There's no deficit or disturbance, which is the engine of craving. And craving, in turn, is a major engine, arguably the engine, of suffering and harm. So how do we get to a place where there's no underlying basis for craving? It's to experience that our deep needs are met, particularly for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Mother Nature wants us to spend, wants animals, including us, to spend most of their time in the green zone. Because in the green zone, it's sustainable. Right? You're just kind of hanging out. You're a zebra in the wild. You're kind of hanging out. You know, you're looking around a little bit. Mostly you're just chill. You're in a good place. That's the green zone. Right? And then comes along a lion. Right? Lion attacks the herd, right? and the zebras run. But fairly quickly, they're back to the green zone. Because as Robert Sapolsky talks about it in his great book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, uh, most stressful episodes in the wild end quickly, one way or another. <laughs> I, had a, I had a surgeon client once. I'm a therapist, too, of course. And um, he said, you know, Rick, in the OR, we have a saying, all bleeding stops eventually, one way or another. You know, right. so, that's kind of... <laughs> I'm not sure I wanted him as my surgeon, but anyway. Okay, so where was I? Oh, yeah, so that's one setting of the brain. It's kind of a strange attractor, if you think about it, in terms of complex systems theory. The brain goes to this place. 
On the other hand, Mother Nature helped our ancestors evolve a second setting of the brain, uh, the one that kicks into gear when we experience that one or more of our core needs is, a, is not met. Right? We experience a sense of threat in terms of safety or frustration or disappointment or loss in terms of our needs to approach uh, rewards, or we experience some sense of loneliness or, or shame, the social emotions, or we've just been voted off the island, as it were, or dismissed in terms of our attaching needs. When that happens, the brain goes into a different setting. It tips into its reactive mode, a term that I've used and other people have used as well, or to simplify, the red zone. We fire up, sympathetic nervous system activates, stress hormones release, and we kind of have a spike, as time flows this way, of red zone reactivity, right? Now in the wild, the plan is for those spikes of red zone reactivity to be few and far between and to end fairly rapidly, one way or another, hopefully for the better, right? But in modern life, while we may not be running and screaming terror from a lion that's chasing us, we tend to experience chronic, mild to moderate red zone uh, stress with very little opportunity for recovery in the green zone. Or if we do go into recovery, often our methods of recovery are not that good for us. We pay a price for them later, right? Uh, and that creates a major challenge for life today. Now, in the red zone, the body burns resources faster than it replenishes them. Long-term building projects like strengthening the immune system or digesting are put on hold. That's why people get constipated when they're stressed, for example. And in three broad umbrella terms, the mind is colored by, uh, I would use the words, fear, frustration, and heartache in terms of our three core needs. Now, the Buddha talked about um, hatred, greed, and delusion. To me, hatred maps really well as a poison, or in the traditional terms that he taught in, a fuel for the fire of suffering, the fuel of hatred, of aversion, of red zone reactivity in terms of the avoiding system of the brain, hatred. Greed, clearly, uh, red zone reactivity in terms of the approaching system of the brain. And he left out, I think, heartache. He implied it, he talked about it. Recent scholarship has shown that uh, for him, love was a fully sufficient path to complete awakening. And you know, scholarship today has shown that maybe if there was a better understanding at the time that that's what he taught, you know, after he died, there might not have been the need for the Mahayana sort of revision, if you will, in terms of bringing kind of more heart back into Dharma practice. But in any case, I think it's important to be very explicit about the social brain, the fact that arguably the you know, reproductive advantages, the engine of biological evolution of social skills over the last several million years, minimally, if not longer, love, broadly defined, have been the primary driver of the evolution of the brain. So paying attention to the attaching system, paying attention to our needs in that regard, uh, honoring heartache on the one hand and love on the other. Uh, I think of heartache as a fourth poison, if you will, a fourth fuel on the fire of suffering, in addition to greed and hatred and delusion. So for me, anyway, that's my kind of overall model, right? So we have a choice, basically. I ask myself, what in the world could be going on? How do you operationalize the brain of a Buddha? Or an Arhant? or someone in stream entry, or someone just pretty far along in practice, uh, ourselves, in a really good day. What in the world could be going on in a brain when there's just no basis for 
resisting or grasping or clinging. There's no need for that. We really have come to peace, which the Buddha called the highest happiness. What in the world could be going on in that sort of a brain? Well, the brain of a Buddha does not have a choice about having a reptilian, mammalian, and primate human layers. The brain of a Buddha, or anybody, does not have a choice about our core needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Or doesn't have, we don't have a choice about these ongoing systems that are always trying to manage uh, avoiding harms, approaching rewards, and attaching to others. Our only choice is which setting the brain is in. Are we in the green zone or the red zone? The responsive mode or the reactive mode? Yes, this is a simplifying dichotomy and so forth, but basically we know the difference between the two states of mind. That's really the essence of the choice, this mode or that mode. And as I'll get to momentarily, the brain also evolved a negativity bias. So even though the green zone is our resting state, it is where we default when we're undisturbed, and the resting state of a system most fundamentally characterizes it. So the green zone most fundamentally characterizes us, which I think is really, really good news. On the other hand, we are profoundly vulnerable to being disturbed from that zone for the urgent, immediate needs of survival, and thus the negativity bias of the brain, which makes it very good at learning from bad experiences and relatively bad at learning from good ones, even though, very poignantly, positive experiences, when converted to brain structure, and there's the rub, are the primary source of the inner strengths broadly defined that we need to make our way through life. Inner strengths like resilience, positive mood, tranquility, mindfulness, concentration, sila, samadhi, and panya, right? Virtue, mindfulness, and wisdom. Those inner strengths are largely grown through positive experiences getting encoded in neural structure. The problem is the brain is very inefficient at turning fleeting positive mental states into lasting, useful, enduring neural traits. And that takes us to a real question of how do we do cultivation? How do we cultivate these qualities inside us with a brain that, you know, as you may know I've said, is like Velcro for the negative, but Teflon for the positive? And that's what I hope I can get into with you, maybe after we do some discussions, some Q&A, and give me a chance to exhale. Okay. All right. All right. Any questions or comments so far? Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners 
who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.